Hey everyone, it's Kevin Morris, and welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 67. Today we're going to be spending some time in 1 John. 1 John is packed full of so many different elements of the Christian life, but one of them that is very important for us to think about today is that of loving one another. Now, there's a lot of ways you can come at this, and our culture certainly tries to distort what it means to love one another. But the way that John treats it in this passage that we'll be going over today is he relates loving one another to our relationship with God. And that is to say, our relationship with God determines whether or not we are truly loving one another. And in the same way, loving one another is an evidence or a gesture, if you will, of the relationship that we have with God. So it's a really important connection. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by my supporters at patreon.com. If you are interested in supporting what I'm doing at Better Bible Reading, please consider going to patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Better Bible Reading. You can choose your support tier, and whichever one you choose will come with special bonuses that I would like to give you as my way of saying thanks. Well, enjoy this episode. Thank you again for listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. It's always difficult to come to a passage when you're preaching somewhere in a non-weekly format because anybody who enjoys and appreciates expository preaching like this case here always wants to explain to you everything that's been said in the text up to this point and so I'm going to try really hard not to do that Uh, but it does help at least to some extent to set the context for first John John writes, if you have spent any time in his writings, you'll notice that he writes in a cyclical fashion. He introduces a concept, he explains it a bit, then he moves on to a new concept. He explains that a bit. He does that with a few different concepts, and then all of a sudden he's circling back around at something he's already covered, but he sheds a little more light on it. He does this, and when you realize that he does this in his writings, it's a lot easier to follow his train of thought. This is that writing style known as recapitulation. In fact, if you uh, agree with what I believe is that John is the author of the book of Revelation, this helps explain away a lot of the confusion that happens there too, right? If you understand that recapitulation method of writing, it's not as hard to follow what's being said, and it's no different in our passage this evening. These are not new concepts in terms of the way that First John is laid out. These are things that he's spoken of before. And so it helps us to know that because hopefully as you leave out of here, you'll have somewhat of an appetite for First John. If you haven't been here in this book recently, in your own reading, you'll want to go back and revisit some of these ideas that have been already introduced earlier on in this epistle. But we see that one of the methods that John really likes to use is this idea of contrast. This particular passage is incredibly full of contrast. Even in these five verses, you have the contrast of 
the one who is from the beginning, which we'll explore that in a moment, and the evil one. You have love, you have hate, you have Cain, you have Abel, you have us and the world. You have life and you have death. This concept of contrast is a really important way for John to get his point across to us when we're seeking to understand what exactly it is that he's trying to say. What is it that we're to take away from this? Well, in this passage, we're right in the middle of John laying out his grand thesis, which I think has to do with the fact that Christians can have true assurance of our salvation. Again and again in this epistle, John says, by this we know, by this we know. He wants to help us have a grasp of our assurance of salvation, and he does that with positive examples and negative examples, or another way to say it, by contrast. That's exactly what's happening here. Sometimes the contrast is in a positive note. Sometimes it's encouragement. Sometimes it is reassurance. But then other times, it's somewhat of a rebuke, a warning, a plea, a bad example that we are to do our very best to shy away from sharing in the example. That's what's happening here in this passage. Cain is the example that we are not to follow. We are not to mimic. And as he does this, he wants us to understand a few different things about our salvation. The first of which has to do with our adoption. The fact that we have been brought into the family of God, that we can indeed say we are God's children. And in addition to that, John wants us to have assurance of our salvation, not only from what is typical, the vertical aspect of our salvation, our right standing with God, but perhaps in one that is not quite examined to the extent that it should be in our lives, that is the horizontal aspect of our salvation. And of course, you can see that in the imperative that we should love one another. I'm talking about Christianity in a horizontal consideration, you and I together. Okay, so now let's take a look at the passage and follow a few conclusions that we should come to as we look at each of these. First, let's look at verse number 11. We should know in this verse that the gospel is the foundation of love. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Again, I said this is not a new concept that John's introducing. So when we read this passage and hear that phrase, from the beginning, we want to know what is he talking about. There's a few different ways that RK, that word, can be utilized in the Greek language. Sometimes it has to do with the idea of an archetype, right? An example, exhibit A, if you will. Other times it has to do with respect to time. A lot of times when we read this, we think John is just talking about a, a linear reference back to this point in time from the beginning. But it's helpful that when we look at this passage, it's helpful to know that though Jesus is not explicitly mentioned here, I think by good inference, we should gather that verse 11 is all about Jesus. The foundation of the gospel, the foundation of our salvation is the one who is from the beginning. You see this in chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. 
that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We see it again in chapter 2, verse number 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Notice that phrase from the beginning is directly connected to Jesus Christ himself. And of course, we know that the Apostle Paul, for example, in the book of Colossians, refers to Jesus as the beginning, right? This idea of the one who is the fountainhead of all things in the gospel, the source, the one who is the centerpiece. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. That is to say, the message from Jesus Christ himself. Now, what is it that John exactly is talking about here? Well, another way that we can be helped in our understanding of 1 John as a whole is to note that what John is really doing here in this epistle is he's writing a commentary, if you will, on his time with Jesus. We call this the Upper Room Discourse. It is really striking to note how many similarities there are with the content mentioned in 1 John and the content you read in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17. Jesus spends a lot of time speaking to his disciples in that upper room, right? He washes their feet. He speaks to them about loving one another. He talks about upcoming persecutions, and then he calls them to take heart. In light of these things, John is reflecting on all of these things, especially in Jesus' call that we should love one another, for by this people will know that you are my disciples indeed. John says in very similar fashion, we should love one another. That is the implication from the gospel. When we are saved, it is God's love applied to us, God's love that transforms us, and it is in the power of that love that we then live this new life. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, you know the verse, I'm sure. But what happens in the aftermath of that love? Since God has loved us, John will go on to say, we also ought to love one another. The vertical aspect of our salvation has horizontal implications for how we live our lives. So John moves now by making that foundational claim, that command to us that we should love one another. He moves into an example. He moves to show us what does he mean. And he does that by actually saying what he doesn't mean. Verse number 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. This is a fascinating example to use. Of all the negative examples in the Bible, and there are plenty, especially in the vantage point of John, who's utilizing the Old Testament There are plenty of bad examples, but he chooses Cain. And that's interesting as he's speaking to the church. You would think that he would speak of men such as David or Solomon or others, but instead he speaks of Cain. We should not be like Cain. Now, I want to make the case here that he may as well have said you should not be like Nero or you should not be like Hitler. Now, those are extreme examples But when you look at the context of Cain and Abel's life, Cain is the archetype of all homicide, isn't he? 
I mean, he is the supreme example of murder. He's the supreme example of what it means to not love one another. How does he do that? Well, he murders his own brother, of course. This is an interesting element that John does here in using Cain as the negative example. But why does he go to such an extreme example here? Well, I think, again, John wants to play into this vertical, horizontal relationship of our salvation. What does he say characteristically about Cain, who was of the evil one? Cain was of the evil one, vertical placement in his state of his heart. He was of the evil one, and because of that, or because he was of the evil one, he murdered his brother, horizontal implications of his state of his heart. Why did he murder him? John again says, his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. There's that contrast again, right? Evil and righteous. It's an interesting way to make an argument. And even though we, in some ways, can almost feel offended that a Christian would be compared to Cain, we have to take seriously what he's doing here and giving us this negative example. He murdered his own brother. That was his horizontal vantage point. And so as we think about that, I want to just quickly read to you uh, from our Westminster Confession of Faith adoption, because I want to use this in the way that John is going to move into this idea of adoption. Let me just read this to you. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 12. Here's what it says about adoption. It says, all those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Now, I want to make a case here that I think when this confession was formulated, there's a corporate element here. When we hear adoption, we think about me and I, but the Writing goes, all those that are justified, we're partakers, we are children, we are heirs, we inherit everlasting salvation. There's that family element of our adoption. And because of that, we should look at the situation with Cain and Abel and realize that you have, in some ways, that family element playing out in a very concentrated scenario. You have Cain and Abel, you have a family, you have a brother who murders the other one, and he is the negative example of Christian love. His example is that he belonged to a different family. He was of the evil one. Now to play into this even more, I think it's really helpful that we just back up to the very beginning of chapter 3 in 1 John. Let me just read those first two verses to you. To see the connection. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. 
And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, what John doesn't say there is you are God's child. What does he say? We are God's children. We are God's children. Cain was of the evil one. He moves on to that contrast. The family of God and the family of the evil one. Those who belong to God, those who participate and in a sense belong to the devil and are doing his bidding, involved in all deeds of unrighteousness, of murder, of hatred. Those are the things that are being contrasted here. Since we are God's children, now we should not be like Cain. That's the conclusion being made here. And it's interesting in Cain's case because although it's bad enough that he murders his own brother, I think it's even worse. It adds insult to injury when you actually look at his conversation with the Lord after he's done this. When God comes after him and asks, what happens to your brother? What does he say to him? Am I my brother's keeper? Why do I care? It's all about me. Individualism. Well, Christianity is anything but individualistic. I I see the bumper sticker a lot, and sometimes it makes me want to jump out of my car. Hopefully you don't have one. If you do, it'll be gone by the time I leave here. It won't be on your car anymore. But I want to jump out of my car sometimes because I see those, those decals that say something to the extent of God loves his children or we're all God's children, but I'm his favorite. It's very self-centered, isn't it? I want to say in some ways they could probably have gotten this straight from Cain. If Cain was in the business of making decals for cars, it would probably be right along those lines. But in the sense of Christianity, that we should love one another, it's not enough that we not murder one another. That's a given, right? I mean, hopefully you don't think those sitting alongside you would be capable or consider, even on your worst day, to murder you. Hopefully you wouldn't consider that either. But John doesn't use the example of Cain just to drive the point across we shouldn't murder each other. But instead, he uses it to make that contrast. You really only have one difference. Either you are loving one another or you may as well have murdered one another. Now, why is that? Well, it's because there's a motivation behind murder, isn't there? There's a heart issue. There's a state of your being that motivates. Murder is just the action. Murder is just the expression of the underlying issue. We could say in some ways it's the issue of the hearts, the issue of the self, but we could also say it's a demonstration of who you belong to. And of course, of course you can do this with any sin depicted in the Bible. This passage just has to do with murder, but it's not only about murder. But Christianity is a call to a life where God says, where is your brother? And we don't respond by saying, am I my brother's keeper? In fact, it's a given that we are one another's keepers in God's family. 
So now let's look at verse number 13, because there's one more negative example here, moving into a positive example in verse 14. Verse 13, hate as the family trait of the world. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Again, John is pouring into that upper room discourse with Jesus. Jesus says, look, if the world hated me, if you're about to see what the world's going to do to me, don't be surprised that those of you who are following after me are going to bear the brunt of the same kinds of persecution, the same kinds of hatred. The world is going to hate you. And John says, don't be surprised about that. That shouldn't surprise any of us when the world acts like the world. There's no surprise there. It shouldn't surprise us when the world demonstrates who it is that they belong to. What should surprise us is when the church is acting like the world. That should come as a shock. That should be the big deal that bothers us of ourselves and of our Christian fellowships. There's a contrast, again, between us and the world. And I think John wants to call us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. Genesis chapter 3. Of course, you know, anytime somebody mentions Genesis chapter 3, it means bad news. It means things were going great until chapter 3, and then things go terrible from there. But as Reformed Christians, you know that in biblical theology, Reformed theology, whatever way we want to describe it, In the midst of this curse is a grand promise. Verse 15 of Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is that two-family dynamic, this fight between the two offsprings. And we know that ultimately... This is a promise of Jesus Christ himself who comes to crush the head of the serpent. But in the midst of that victory, there's a guarantee of conflict. There is enmity happening here. Of course, he's speaking to the serpent when he's making this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And we get no further than one chapter later in the book of Genesis before we already see this playing out. There's going to be enmity between the two offsprings. Move to chapter 4 of Genesis, and you have enmity. You have homicide. You have Cain killing his brother Abel. And the implication of Abel dying is the need to raise up another one of that offspring. Seth, he comes in as God's promise to sustain that offspring, but still, you are going to have conflict. But that conflict is working itself out all the way through the rest of Scripture. By the time we get to Jesus' life, what happens between him and the religious community? There's enmity. What is it that Jesus actually says to them when they are making all kinds of accusations and threats against him? You are of your father, the devil. The conflict of offspring, the conflict between the family of God and the family of the devil. Don't be surprised when the world acts like the world, but be surprised, indeed be ashamed, 
when the church acts like the world because hatred is the family trait of the world. Some encouragement, some good news comes to us in verse 14. Love is the family trait of God's church, of God's household. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. One of the things that I appreciate about Presbyterian polity, and especially in our denomination as a whole, is that there is no autonomous church aspect. The fact that I'm here from another church in our presbytery, and you welcome me in, I'm able to preach the Word of God to you, our pastor over at Ortega is constantly praying for other pastors in our presbytery, other churches. I'm sure that you all do the same. We have this family element, this corporate element of Christianity. We have it figured out somewhat, at least, right? But sometimes in Presbyterianism, we focus so much on the big picture forest that we forget about the tree element, don't we? We forget about the corporate aspect within the body. And sometimes that's because we don't, we don't want to go the route of autonomous standalone churches. We don't want to think too much about our church only because we are Presbyterians after all. But that's not the right attitude either. There are certainly two extremes, but then there's also a good, healthy balance here. It is because of God's love that we have been brought into His family, that we can indeed be called children, that we belong to His household. And in the like manner, when adoption happens, sometimes adoption means more than one child coming into that family. You see this in a, in a worldly analogy. Of course, the analogy breaks down because God's people are not a split family. But since split families are reality of this world, you know that sometimes it means that the children come together into one family and suddenly there is a little bit of friction. We are that way in certain sense, because although we are part of God's church, we are not yet glorified. We still struggle with sin. We still fight against the flesh. We still try to battle against the devil. We still try to keep ourselves from being stained by this world. And we're trying to do that while also being an example to one another and loving one another. It certainly takes the Spirit's help. It certainly takes the grace of God. But we must remember that the family of God is a we, is an us concept, not an I or a me concept. We should appreciate our adoption because what God is doing in me and bringing me into his family, he is likewise doing for you in bringing you into his family. We should come alongside one another and celebrate the mutual state of our adoption. We are God's workmanship, after all. We're God's building. And one of the ways that we can do that, one of the ways that we can really love one another the way we are commanded to here, is by participating in one another's sanctification. What I don't mean by this is that hang around me long enough and you won't sin as much as you normally would. But rather, I'm talking about spiritual gifts. The problem with spiritual gifts, though, is that in our culture, they always terminate to me. 
I remember the early years of my Christian experience. I was at a uh, just a conservative small Baptist church, and what was popular at that time was to take your spiritual gift test. Right? This was just found by probably somewhere on the internet. It wasn't something our church came up with, but what you're supposed to do, you take your spiritual gift test, you decide where you score on the statistics, kind of like creating a character on a video game, right? And you think, I have a pretty good deck here. I mean, I, I got a nine in humility, which obviously is not true just by the fact of you saying that. <clears throat> but we start thinking about me and I when we think about spiritual gifts where you follow Paul's logic. In 1 Corinthians, spiritual gifts are all about others. Spiritual gifts are the way that God equips us to serve the church, to serve one another. God is doing His work in you through me. And notice, it's God doing the work, not me. But still, we're allowed to. We have the privilege of participating in one another's walk with Jesus Christ because God is pleased to do that. God cares for us and God wants us to grow and to be matured. To use Paul's analogy here, in the body of Christ, love, the book of Colossians, love binds everything together. If spiritual gifts are the work that we do in the body of Christ, being individual members, making up one collective body, and love holds everything together, we could say that love is the skin of the body. If you don't have the skin, things go bad really quick. You don't have the skin, things don't function the way that they should. You may have all the gifts in the world, but if we don't have love, we are not operating in a healthy way for the good of the whole body. In like manner, John says, we should love one another, and we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Although we are individual members, we are part of one body. And the fact that loving one another is that test case of how we can prove or demonstrate that we are part of God's family is because God has saved us into a body. If we are rogue members, if we go on about our own business, it is like cutting a hand off and expecting that hand to function and thrive all by itself. Well, what's going to happen to the hand? It's going to wither and dry and fade away. But attached to the rest of the body and held together with love, you have true growth, true health, true operation of that body. That's why John says here that we know, here's that assurance, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The horizontal implication of our salvation is also a demonstration of our standing with God, our vertical situation here. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So love is always on the horizon, we could say. Love is not a one and done thing. It is really easy, believe it or not, to act like we love each other for one hour on Sunday morning and one hour on Sunday evening. Really easy to do. Judas was able to pull it off the whole earthly ministry of Jesus. What happened when Jesus said, one of you will betray me? Did all the disciples turn their chairs and look at Judas and say, it's got to be him? 
Of course not. Nobody had any clue who it was. Instead, they said, uh, maybe it's me. I don't know how it could be any of them. Maybe it's got to be me. It's easy to do this for one hour or two hours on a Sunday. But love is the abiding principle of our Christian fellowship. The horizontal implication of the fact that we are saved and belong to God's family is that we abide in love. We abide in God's love and we abide in loving one another. I love the way that he uses that phrase back in verse number 14, that we have passed out of death into life. That phrase there is the same phrase used to describe Jesus' earthly ministry as he passed from one town to another. That means he's no longer in that town that he was at. He's moved on to a different town. The same should be said of us. We cannot be in two places at once. We can't abide in death, abide in the principles that would show that we're part of the world, and also make the claim that we're abiding in love. We cannot be in two places at once. We are always abiding in God's love. We must always abide in that love. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You see there, hate is the motivation that brings about that action. We may as well be murderers because we share the same trait, if indeed we are of the evil one. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But in the same manner, whoever loves his brother does have eternal life abiding in him. We must always look back to Jesus Christ. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. This is the point that Jesus wanted to drive home to the disciples in his last moments with them. He wanted to address them not on the latest and greatest debate of theological doctrine, but the most overlooked doctrine of all. We should love one another. Oh, that's easy. Is it easy? Cain only had one brother to deal with. He had nobody else to compete with. He had no distractions of the world, which we have today. And still, he killed his own brother. In our own power, we will meet the same demise as Cain. We might not physically murder somebody, but we'll be guilty of the same family traits. But friends, if we abide in God's love, if we understand the fact that we have been saved and brought into God's family, the corporate family of God, all peoples, all nations, all languages gathered together under the blood of Jesus Christ, then it's a lot easier to love because we understand that what God is doing in me, He's doing in you. We are both taking part in this glorious new life, this glorious new family to belong to. And we must then abide in Him. And so the answer to the question, am I my brother's keeper for us is absolutely, you better believe it, friends. Let's pray together. Well, thanks for listening to that episode, friends. I really hope that you were encouraged by that, and I hope that you really do appreciate what it means that we are God's children, that we share in this glorious salvation, and that as long as we are on this earth growing and seeking to be more and more like Jesus Christ, we have a 
common struggle. We have common encouragements. We have a common salvation for all those who are in Jesus Christ. And that should encourage us to truly love one another and hope the best and intend on doing the utmost for each other because we are to love one another as we love ourselves. Well, thanks again for listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. I look forward to another episode alongside you real soon. In the meantime, please feel free to go to betterbiblereading.com where you can find the previous episodes as well as other content. And by the way, if you have anything that you would like me to cover in terms of doctrine or Bible questions, please write to me, Kevin at betterbiblereading.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening.